pray with me as we go to God's word. Heavenly Father, we do worship you this morning. Lord, we bow our hearts, we bow our minds uh, before you, and we honor you for what you have done, Lord, the mighty deeds that you've done in the past, the mighty deeds that you will do in the future. We worship you. We worship you because, Lord, we are here because of you, because you sent your son for us on the cross. We worship you this morning, Lord, because you are worthy of our praise. Help us, Lord, as we submit ourselves to your word to learn from it. Lord, help us to be different as we leave this room this morning because we've looked intently at your word. In your name we pray, amen. Go ahead and start opening your Bibles to Psalm 130. How do you prepare for worship? How do you prepare for worship? It's an odd question. It's an odd question. Usually we think that we're going to come here and the team that was just up here, the team that does an excellent job, they prepare us and lead us in worship. So we come to worship through song and then we come to worship through the reading and the preaching of God's word. So we don't usually think of preparing for worship. How do you prepare for worship. What do you do when you prepare to come on Sunday mornings? And I know that's going to be different for each and every one of you, depending on the, the stage of life you're in. I remember when I was a child, I was told to get up at a certain time, to put on certain clothes, to look presentable, comb your hair, right? Because we're going to church. And there wasn't really, I, I never really thought of preparing my heart for that moment. It was just what we did. I remember even at times I didn't want to go to church. Um, I remember one time in particular, um, a girl in Sunday school, it's always that, right? It was a girl in Sunday school, and she had told me that I had a face of a dog. I had the face of a dog. I looked like a dog. And, and knowing what I know now, I probably would have said thank you, because dogs are cute. That probably meant she thought I was cute. Um, but, but in my mind, that can go like so many ways. Like I've seen some ugly dogs in my time. I've seen dogs that I, I don't know why people own them. A friend of mine had a hairless crested chihuahua or something, Chinese hairless crested chihuahua, and I looked at that and I thought, why? It looks like a rat. But he loved that dog. But this girl, when she said I had the face of a dog, I thought bad things, right? I thought I looked terrible. I would look in the mirror and try to get the, see in the profile, my profile in the mirror, which you can't really do, um, Now we just snap a picture, right? But back then I couldn't do it. And I didn't want to go to church. I remember my dad sitting down with me and saying, son, why do we go to church? Is it for Sunday school? And I I can't remember the full ecclesiological, theological, doctrinal answer I gave in that moment. But I knew it wasn't for, I knew the Sunday school answer. No, we don't go for Sunday school. And I could ask you, do you go to see friends Maybe that is actually high on your list because maybe you only see friends here once a week. Do you go for our coffee that could rival Starbucks out in the foyer in the morning? That's not the reason why you come. Do you come to hear this worship band led by Dave Crawford with that voice that he has that none of us are jealous of much, right? Is that why you come? How do you prepare 
I remember when I was a teen, it was somewhat similar, but I was a little more excited to come to church. I I would get up on my own and I would drive myself to church, sometimes with my sister. But there was never this idea of how do I prepare my heart for that moment. Then I became a dad with many small children. You've been there if you are a parent with small children, getting out the door to come to worship, you're not even thinking about preparing your heart. You're just trying to get the little kids out with matching socks and shoes on the right feet, right? It's, it's more about sanctification than worship in that moment. Just getting here is a victory. How do you prepare your heart for worship? Psalm 130 will help us with that this morning. Psalm 130 um, is an Old Testament psalm that's going to lead us and be an example for us in how to prepare for worship. And, and I know that I've said so far, how do you prepare for worship morning? And I know that I've centered it around Sunday morning corporate worship because this psalmist, the guy writing this psalm, we don't know who it is, he's on his way to the temple for worship. So, so I'm, I'm housing our our topic this morning and how do you prepare for coming, but we know you're to live a life of worship. So when you wake up in the morning, how do you prepare yourself for the day of worship? As you live through the week, how are you preparing yourself for coming on Sunday morning for corporate worship? How do you think through that and do you even think through that? I've entitled this, Prepare Your Heart for Worship, and I actually kind of wondered if that should have been made more of a question I have prepare your heart. We could have had, do you prepare your heart? How do you prepare your heart? But I ended up putting it in the form of an imperative because you must do it. You must prepare your heart for worship. Some of us just think, I, I go to work Monday through Friday. Saturday is the fun day. Sunday, I go to church. Then I go home, right? It's just something that you do. You tick it off on the list. You check the box. It's not about that. Monday through Friday is not about that. Just Saturday fun day is not about Saturday fun day. It's about worship. In everything you do and everything you say and in how you live, you live to worship. But here we're going to house it for right now in preparing for Sunday morning. I've uh, got this uh, Psalm 130 breaks down. It's got it's eight verses. It breaks down into couplets. So our first point will be verses one and two, then three and four, five and six, seven and eight. And we're going to look at the worshiper's petition in verses 1 and 2, and we'll see the worshiper's predicament in verses 3 and 4, then the worshiper's peace and the worshiper's proclamation. Here the psalmist is going to demonstrate for us kind of four phases that every true worshiper should go through in their heart in preparing for worship. So let's begin with the worshiper's petition. Look at the look at the superscription there, right above verse one, this is a song of ascents. That's really important for us to, to know what's going on here. It's part of 15 Psalms. They actually start back in chapter 120, these songs of ascents. You see that at the, the heading of every chapter. And it's going to lead us through chapter 134. So it's these 15 Psalms that were dedicated. They were specially made in a special hymnal within the hymnal right? The book of Psalms was a hymnal. These songs of ascents were specially made for pilgrims that were heading to Jerusalem. 
These were songs that would be memorized and sung as they're making their way to Jerusalem. And it's a song of ascent. It's a song that goes up. And some have speculated that because there were 15 steps apparently from the court of women to the court of Israel as they would go up in the temple, then that's why there are 15 psalms. It could be. I think it's probably better to think about this in the fact that Jerusalem itself sits at, a, at 2,700 2, feet above sea level. And so anywhere, you, coming from anywhere in Israel to go to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage, you're going to head up. You will have a, a, an ascent, physical ascent. And then these psalms were made to bring the heart of the believer in ascent up before the king. So these songs of ascent, by the way, these pilgrimages would, were, were to happen three times a year. That you would leave your home, you would leave your work, you would leave things in, in, the, in the past. No, you would leave things behind you. That's what I was looking for. And you would work your way towards Jerusalem. You'd work your way towards the temple. You work your way to worship God the way God ordained worship. Because you're honoring God not only in what you're going to do when you're there, but also in the going to Jerusalem. You're not going to hop in your SUV take your camper and drive down to Jerusalem, right? This was start walking to go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord in the temple. Even if we just stopped right there, just at the title, Songs of Ascent. How do you stack up with an Old Testament believer who's going to leave everything and head down to Jerusalem for worship? It could take several days to get there. You're probably going to be there for a little bit, several days to get back. This is no small thing to go down to the temple to worship. But the songs of ascent were, were psalms that were written to prepare the heart of the worshiper for that. How do you stack up on Sunday morning when you roll out of bed? Do you, roll, do you, do you set your alarm as late as possible to get as much sleep as you can so you can just kind of like you know, put your hair in the right place and smell your clothes to see if they stink and then just jump in the car and come? Or do you prepare? One of my favorite texts in the Old Testament in, in Exodus, and we're not going to go there, but here God tells Moses to tell the people, prepare your hearts. He says, I'm coming down to meet you on Mount Sinai. This is the first time. This is right after the Exodus has happened. They make it to Mount Sinai and God says, I'm coming to meet the people. Tell them to get ready. He tells them three days in advance, wash your clothes, he says. Wash your clothes. Prepare your hearts because the king is coming. How do you stack up with that kind of attitude? Song of Ascent. Verse one. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Verse one. Here's the, the worshiper's petition. Out of the depths. This is a, an idea that the worshiper is in a dark place. He's, he's in water, right? He's in the depths of the sea. Have you ever been there in a tough time, in a struggling time? It reminds me of, actually reminds me of Jonah. Um, and I don't know if this psalm, we don't know exactly when this psalm was written, but Jonah chapter two, Jonah says this. He's in the belly of the fish at this point, kind of probably 
hashtag worst day ever for anyone. I can't really imagine how gross that would be for three days. Like, I don't even like to eat fish, so that would be nightmare of nightmares for me. But it says this in Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and all your breakers and billows passed over me. When I think of the psalmist back in 130, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. We've all had tough times. And if you watch the news, it seems like it's tough times. But the psalmist doesn't have that kind of tough times in mind. He doesn't have what's going on in Afghanistan or with COVID. He doesn't have those things in mind. We'll get to it in a second. But what he does have in mind is that he feels like he's drowning. I'm in the depths. I called out to you, out from the depths. He's got this sense of being alone, floating in the middle of an ocean, helpless and lost. He says, I cried out to you, O Lord. I cried out to you, O Lord. Notice that the word Lord there is in upper caps. And I know you know this, but let's review it. Upper caps means that this word originally, this is Yahweh, this is God's, this is God's name that he gave to Moses in front of the burning bush. When Moses said, if I go to, to, back to Egypt and I say that you sent me, and they say, well, who, what's the name? Who sent you? He's gonna, God says, God says, tell them I am that I am sent you. This is God's forever name. This is God's uh, eternal name, his promise-keeping, timeless, covenant-loving name. It's used over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. But notice how uh, that's at the end of verse 1. Verse 2 starts with Lord, lower caps. That's Adonai. This means Lord and Master. So as you look down, you can just look at the, at the psalm. Verse 2 has Adonai. Verse 3, again, upper caps, we have back to Lord. At the end of verse 3, or the beginning of that last stanza, is Adonai again. Then you get down to verse 5, Adonai. And then you get Adonai in verse 6. And then Yahweh in verse 7. And Yahweh again in verse 7. So just notice that change. One is the timeless covenant name for God. This is the name that God gave saying, I will remember you. I will love you. This is his eternal name. Adonai is when the, the psalmist is calling out to the Lord as his Lord and master. And he says, I've cried to the Lord in verse 2, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. And we could kind of blow over that kind of quickly. He's praying to the Lord and he wants the Lord to hear him. We pray to the Lord as believers and the Lord does hear us. But have you ever stopped to think about that? What's this, what's this worshiper's worst nightmare at the moment? That his prayer would go to God and God wouldn't hear it. He would cry out to the Lord who is capable of bringing change. And he would have his plea fall on deaf ears. Have you ever thought about the fact that the Lord does listen? Doesn't that thought kind of almost drive you to your knees? The maker and creator of heaven and earth who created by speaking, 
who created things with the power of his word, who holds all things together, who, who is right now in this moment holding all things together in, in all the continents all around the world and all believers are praying to him and at the same time he's hearing every single one of them. I've got three kids and when every one of them talks to me at the same time, I'm done, right? I'm tapping out, I can't handle it. But here, the God of the universe hears you. Shouldn't that drive you to worship, friends? Doesn't that cause you to stop and think a little bit? It's a perspective moment. Have you ever had a perspective moment? I remember one time I was, I was a missionary in Italy before coming to the States, and I remember at one point I'm driving my little Fiat Tipo, and I'm going through these vineyards, and these vineyards are, are taller than my little car, and I'm looking in front of me, and there's the Dolomite Mountains. They're the, the foothills of the Alps. They're kind of rising up. It was beautiful. And I was just thinking about the fact that, that they're massive, and here I am in my little Fiat Tipo, driving along, and I'm looking at the size of these mountains, and my, my brain kind of did a Google Earth thing, just like, and I just kind of, my brain thought of Italy as it was backing away. You've seen Google Earth, right? You put in a new location, it like zooms out, and then it turns and then zooms in. All this did in my mind, I'm just like zooming out thinking, oh, the Dolomites are really big, but really they're, they're a small part of Italy. And it just, my brain kind of kept thinking like that, backing out, going, Italy is such a tiny little nation, in Europe, and Europe's not all that big as, as I'm thinking about everything. And in that moment, I had to pull my car over and just stop and say, Lord, I am but a speck of dust on this planet that you created, and you love me. You sent your son for me. I literally had to stop the car just to, just to have this thought, just to, to wash over that thought. It's a, it's a Psalm 8 kind of thought where the psalmist writes, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you even care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty and you make him to rule over the works of your hands and you have put all things under your feet. Here in my little tipo, I was just thinking, who am I? That God would send his son for me, an enemy of the cross, a sinner, someone who was in rebellion against him. He sent his son out of love to die for me. He hears us. He who created all of that. And then if you, if, if you ever back out even from that, you can watch these cool YouTube videos, the size of the earth in comparison to just the sun. And then they back out and there's the sun compared to the next biggest star. And, and it just keeps backing out. And God made all of that with the, the power of his voice. And I love in, in Genesis chapter one, when it gets to the stars, this is, and he made all the stars. It's just a little, it's thrown in there like it's a nothing. He created the sun and the moon and, and all the stars. And when you start thinking about that, you start thinking, who am I? Who am I? The psalmist in his, in his petition, he says, oh Lord, I cried to you, hear me. Did, did you catch the fact that he's repeating that thought over and over? I cried to you, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. He's crying out to the Lord because, because of something. And this something isn't just because he had a rough day at work. This something isn't because he watched the news. He's worried about what's going on in the world around him. This, this something isn't the, the something that's typically in your Facebook feed. This something is deeper than all of those things. 
Look with me right now at the worshiper's predicament. The worshiper's predicament. Here's what he says in verse 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you that, that you may be feared. His, what's driving him to call out to the Lord, again, isn't his rough day. It isn't because someone said something that was mean to him and he didn't like it and he just doesn't know how to live. This, it's not, he's not being fickle. What's driving him, the worshiper, is his own sin. Now, he's already a worshiper, and we're going to get to that. He loves the fact that in God there is forgiveness, but what drives him in this moment is the, the fact that he still sins against a holy God against a God who has redeemed him, against a God who has ransomed him, he still sins against him. He says, oh Lord, if you would mark iniquity, who could stand? It's a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question. Who could stand? You couldn't stand before God. If he kept count of everything you do, all the deeds you have done, all the thoughts that you've had, you would not be able to stand before the righteous judge. It's a rhetorical question. He's glad that that doesn't happen. But, but be careful, friend. If you're here today, if you're here today, flip with me to, to Revelation 20. Obviously, you're here today. Let me finish that sentence. If you're here today and you're not a believer, God does keep count. Flip with me to Revelation chapter 20. This, we don't have time to go through what's going on here, but know this, in this moment, the only people who are standing before the very throne of a righteous judge are those who have not believed, those who have not repented. So every single person before the throne in this moment are non-believers. Chapter 20, verse 11, and I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose presence heaven and earth fled away and no place was found for them. There's a throne in front of him and on that throne is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. On that throne is the perfect judge and you're not gonna bribe this judge. You can't wink, you can't get away. There's no, there's no circumventing the righteous judgment that's coming. The judge is on the throne. The perfect judge is on the throne. And I saw the dead, verse 12, great and small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. So the scene here plays out that we've got the throne, and in front of the throne, there are books laid open and then a book laid open. And the books that are laid open contain everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, everything about your life laid out in the books. Even the secret thoughts of your heart, the things that you've clicked on on the internet when no one was watching, the things that you've said in your mind when no one was listening, those things are written in the book. Would you want to read that book? Would you want your mama to read that book? You wouldn't. Would you want the righteous judge who's going to judge you according to what's in that book to read the book? Not at all. 
And then the other book is open and it's the Lamb's book of life. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book, in other words, if you have not repented of your sins and you've not asked forgiveness for all those things, then your name will not be in that book. And if your name's not in the book, then you get judged according to those books. There is a time when God will mark iniquity. Remember, this is a time when only non-believers are standing before him, but that is not a time, that is not a place that you want to be in. You don't want to be there. And, and our author, the, the worshiper, he's saying, Lord, if you were to mark iniquities, who could stand? And the reality is no one could stand. You could not stand before a righteous judge with everything written down in front of you and attempt to plead your case. And by the way, God doesn't need that book opened in front of him, does he? God doesn't need to know everything you've said and done. He knows everything you've said and done. What is that book for? Who is that book for? It's for you and me. Well, it's for those who are there who have not asked forgiveness for their sins, right? It's for that person. It's so that the righteous judge can say, here's everything you've ever done. And here's my judgment. Because you've never asked forgiveness. It would be impossible to stand. But our worshiper, our worshiper will not be there. Because look what he says in verse four. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness with you. The worshiper knows his Old Testament. God promises over and over again in the Old Testament that he will forgive. Now we live on this side of the cross even, right? The worshiper in the Old Testament, he's looking forward to the time when God will make all things right, when the Messiah will come. So he looks forward in faith. You and I get to look back in faith. But this worshiper is looking forward, thinking through the Old Testament. Listen to, what, listen to what Moses says to God about what God already revealed to Moses back in Exodus. So in Numbers 14, 8, Moses says this, God, didn't you say the Lord is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression? Here Moses is saying to God, remember God that you are the forgiving God. In Psalm 86, verse 5, the psalmist says, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. The psalmist in Psalm 86, I love it. He says, you are good and you're ready to forgive. You stand ready to forgive. Like the, like the prodigal son's father who was waiting for him to come home, longing for the son to come back in order to forgive him. Over 10 times in the book of Leviticus, God promises that he will forgive he will forgive. When you sacrifice for the sins that you've done, I will forgive you. So our, our reader loves the fact, our reader, our psalmist, our writer, loves the fact that God forgives, but there is forgiveness with you, he says. But you know what stands out to me more than anything in verse four? Look at that second part of verse four. It's the most interesting part to me. That we're forgiven is nothing new to the New Testament believer. That God has forgiven us is nothing new. But look at the outcome of what that forgiveness produces. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. The purpose of forgiveness is that we fear the Lord. The purpose of forgiveness is that we come before him with awe and trembling. The purpose of forgiveness is that the idea that we've been forgiven from all of those things that could have been written in those books but he forgave us. He blot out our iniquities so that we could come before him should drive us to worship and honor and fear him. I, do you think about that often? 
With you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. With you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. So in the first half of our psalm, our psalmist has cried out from the depths. Imagine with me, he's walking, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He is a worshiper and we know this because he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's fulfilling God's requirement. I'm on my way to worship God in the temple and while I'm on my way there, something's bothering me. Something's eating away at him. Out of the depths, I've cried out to you. Oh, let your ear, oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. Because if you, Lord, would mark iniquities, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. So here in our first half, we've seen, we see this, the, the worshiper pressing in on his way to Jerusalem in this song of ascent. And again, we don't know who wrote this psalm. We don't know when it was written, but it was compiled with these 15. So worshipers, if you were living in Israel and you were making your way, probably with a group of other people heading towards the temple from whatever town you lived in, you would probably be reciting this maybe even singing it on your way to Jerusalem with everyone. So it would be somewhat, not the same, somewhat similar to what's happened up here this morning with our, with our team up here. We would be worshiping as we make our way. And the cry of the worshiper is, oh Lord, I still sin against you. You've forgiven me and you continue to forgive me. And yet I continue to sin against you. And that's eating away at him. Does, does your sin eat away at you? Believer, Does your sin bother you? Does your sin drive you to cry out to the Lord from the depths of despair and say, Lord, hear my voice? Like the worshiper, we don't stay there. We consider our sin. It should should cause us grief. It should cause our conscience to hurt. Every time we sin, we should be thinking, oh Lord, I did it again. My sin drove you to the cross. My, my My sin forced the son to come down from heaven, to leave his throne when he didn't have to. Angels surrounded him, worshiping him day and night, calling holy, holy, holy to him. And he stepped off his throne and he, he became, he took on humanity. God became human. We don't often think enough about that. We think we're pretty cool. We're the top of the food chain. Yeah, God became one of us. Pat yourself on the back. You're pretty good. You're not. The difference between you and who God is is a chasm that we can't ever fully understand. It's so big, it's so wide. One person one time said it's like you becoming mold so that you could preach to the mold in your refrigerator, right? That difference. You becoming an ant to preach to the ant colony. That's the difference. Christ stepped down. And he stepped down to die on the cross for your sins. He lived a life you couldn't live in perfect obedience to the law. And he died a death that you deserve. And yet you still sin against him. That should drive you to worship. That's what's driving our worshiper here. He cries out. And then he remembers. But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. Let's look at verses five and six. Now we get to the worshiper's peace. Verses five and six, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. 
My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. Here, there's a, there's a shift. Did you catch the shift? Did you catch the change in attitude that the worshiper has? First, he's in despair, but now something is changing. Something is different. He says, but I wait for the Lord. Notice again, the Lord is in upper caps. I wait for the covenant-keeping, gracious God. I wait for him who made a promise and will always keep it. One of my favorite texts that just talks about why God loves us is back in Deuteronomy. Let me just read it for you really quickly. You don't have to turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord, well, let me back up. Verse, I'll do chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any of the peoples for you are the fewest of the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and he goes on and on. The Lord chose them because he promised to. The Lord kept his covenant with them because he promised to. He's the covenant-keeping God. He's the everlasting Yahweh. And here, the worshiper says this, my soul waits for the Lord. I wait for the Lord. I wait for Yahweh. My soul does wait. And in his word, I hope. His attitude is shifting. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, Pastor Adam has been talking about anxiety and worry and fear and how those things are sins against the Lord. We'll hear the psalmist shifts from things that cause worry and fear and wait to things that cause hope. And the, the one thing that causes hope in his heart and in his mind is God and his word. Is God and his word. Look what he says. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait and in his word do I hope. He doesn't hope that things are going to get better. By the way, hope, and you know this, hope, hope in the Bible is different from the way we use hope today, isn't it? Like if, if we say, I hope it's going to be a cool day today, it's just expressing desire, isn't it? We're just expressing uh, a desire for the day. Or if I hope the Dodgers will win, or I hope everybody in the world recognizes that soccer is the best sport, right? It's just things we don't have concrete evidence on, but we're expressing desire. I hope this will happen. Biblical hope is completely different. Biblical hope is assurance. Biblical hope is standing on the truth of God's word. It's connected with faith. The way I like to look at it is faith looks back. Faith looks back at, at what God has done and says, look, God has always been faithful. Therefore, God will always be faithful, says hope. Faith looks back, hope looks forward. But it's, it's a forward-looking hope. And he says, my hope is in your word. His desire is in the Lord. His hope is in a relationship. It's not in merely the removal of guilt. Notice what he says here isn't, with you is forgiveness of sins, so take away this feeling of conviction that I have in my heart that I've sinned against you. His hope isn't that he'll have a better feeling. His hope isn't that he'll feel okay the next time he sins. His hope is in a relationship. My hope is in the Lord. My hope is in his word. I wait on him. And I love how he carries that thought through to verse six. Look what he says in verse six. My soul waits for the Lord. And here's the example. 
more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. Now, I have never been a watchman, right? I've never been uh, on the city wall of Jerusalem looking out at night, watching over the city or watching over the areas outside to see if the enemy is coming. But the night is dark. The night is black. The night is cold. But what does every watchman wait for? The rising of the sun. Since the day that God created it, no one has ever thought, I wonder if the sun will rise today. No matter the predicament, no matter the difficulty, no matter the hardship, the sun will rise. Morning comes, right? And here he says, I wait for you like that. I wait for you like the watchman who longs for the morning. I wait for you like the one who is waiting for the sure thing that will happen. That's how I wait for you. Remember, this hope isn't like, I hope it's going to rain today. I hope, I hope my team will win. This is a hope in the Lord and the morning will come. And like they wait for the morning, I wait for the Lord because it's sure. My soul waits for the Lord. We've seen a progression in attitude so far in the heart of the believer as they move from remorse over sinning against a holy and righteous God to remembering that forgiveness is found in him through the promise of his word. And that brings us to the final set of verses here, verses seven and eight, and it's the worshiper's proclamation. The worshiper's proclamation. Look at the difference of attitude here in our worshiper. Verse seven, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there's loving kindness and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I love this. The progression is amazing. You wouldn't expect him to say this when you've read verse one. Because verse one, he's crying out from the depths, but now he's remembering the Lord's forgiveness. He's sure, it's sure because it's written in his word. His hope is in the morning. Whoa, His hope is in the Lord, just like the morning will come. And now he's proclaiming, oh Israel, hope in the Lord. Oh Israel, wait for the Lord because he will redeem. I love the phrase that he gives here. First of all, he says, for with the Lord is loving kindness. Loving kindness is a a real interesting word in Hebrew. We have nothing that really fits it. Uh, In English, it's more of a compound word in English. That's why it's usually something like loving kindness or covenant love or loyal love. This is God's love based on who he is. We We don't get that. We don't really know that. We usually love people based on how they are. We love people based on how they act towards us. If they act well towards us, then we love them. If they don't act well towards us, they are now our sworn enemies, right? That's, that's how we are as people. If someone says something rude to me, it's done, right? That's how we are. But here, look what he says. Why can he hope in the Lord? Why should Israel hope? Because with the Lord, there is loving kindness. God's love is based on God. And with him, there is a permanent, everlasting covenant love that will never change. And it comes from him. And look what he says in the second half of that. And with him is abundant redemption. That phrase makes me smile. Uh, The author could have simply said, with him, there's redemption. 
And that would have been amazing. That would have been awesome. It would have been over our heads. It would have caused us to worship because God redeems his people. God buys them back. He ransoms them. That's the whole theme of, of, of the Exodus. God is taking his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and he brings them to where he wants them. He could have just left it at redemption, but he added abundant. One translation puts plentiful. That with God, with his loving kindness, there is plentiful, abundant, enormous redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Look at the sure-footed declaration that he makes. One day, an event will happen when he will redeem all of Israel. And, and this word ransom, it carries with it the idea or the word redeem. They, in some ways, they're, they're, they're synonymous. It carries the idea that something is presented of equal or greater value than something else. We get that, right? And when someone is being ransomed, when someone's being, you never ransom someone who's not worth anything. It's pointless, right? But kidnapping happens and then a ransom goes out because whoever's being held is of great value. And so the ransom that has to be paid has to be a ransom of great value, of equal or greater value than the person itself, right? That's how ransoms work. Who was presented on that day in that event of equal or greater value than you? Christ himself. Christ himself took to the cross of greater value than any and all of your sins. And he hung on that cross, paying the penalty, receiving the wrath of God for you so that you could be redeemed because in him there is plentiful redemption. Do you consider that, believer? Does that drive you to worship, believer? Does that help you prepare your heart? And it should cause you to then turn and proclaim to everyone around you, trust in the Lord. Ask forgiveness for your sins because you have no hope. Because if the Lord marks iniquity, you're in trouble. But in him, there's plentiful redemption. There's abundant redemption. Our worshiper convicted of his own sin and rebellion in his heart towards a loving God, yet understands that in Yahweh there is forgiveness of sin. He rests in the hope offered by his unchanging and eternal love, knowing that abundant redemption is offered from God, that he will redeem us and ransom us from our sins. And all of this drives the believer to open his mouth, compelled by the love of God to call all others, believers and non, to hope in the Lord. So how do we take this home? How do we stack up with that? We're not an Old Testament worshiper. We're not on our way to Jerusalem. We're not working our way up the hill, right? We're on this side of the cross. Christ has redeemed us. And, and being on this side of the cross means we, we lose even a lot, of the, a lot of the heart attitude behind worship. We, we like worship for the warm, fuzzy feeling that it gives us when we sing songs and corporate worship with other people. Worship for an Israelite would have been a little different. You'd have brought an animal with you to worship. You would have been given a, a knife to sacrifice that animal, and you would have had to sacrifice that. You would have had to kill the animal, that animal that's taking the place for your sins and your iniquity. And you would have had to, you would have had to think through that as this animal is taking your place that day, and as you're killing the animal you would be thinking, my sin is gross. My sin is ugly. My sin is costy. My sin brings death. 
but you would walk away from that moment thinking, praise God for a substitute. We're on this side of that though. We don't think about that when we come to worship. We come to sing songs and to hear God's word preached and we, we come elated in heart, happy to get the coffee that's out there and to hear Dave lead us. But we don't think before we come, how do we prepare for worship? Like the Old Testament worshiper who left his home and he's pressing in for days towards Jerusalem and he's contemplating his sin, albeit he's a believer that God gives forgiveness, he's convicted by the fact that he still sins. Do you think about that? Do you let that thought pierce you? How do we relate to this? Well, in some ways, it's very similar. I think when we think about a song of ascent and they're just the idea of, of preparing yourself, we too should prepare ourselves. And again, I'm going to house this in the context of church on Sunday morning, but we're to worship every day, all day. Your life is to be a living act of worship. But even just thinking about Sunday morning, do you start preparing Saturday night? I'm a big fan of Sunday starts Saturday. I'm a big fan of if you can go to bed early because you don't want to be sitting here on Sunday morning kind of nodding off a little bit. You want to have your heart and your mind ready for action. Pick out your clothes on Sunday. Get ready. Start listening to your Spotify praise list on Sunday morning when you wake up. Ask Alexa to play a worship songs. Whatever it is, do you, do you prepare Does your heart prepare for worship like he prepared for worship? And even as we think about the worshiper's petition and predicament, they're very similar. Knowing the cost of redemption, we on this side of the cross, we know the cost of redemption. Shouldn't we be more grieved? It's not just an animal that took our place. We've been redeemed and ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. So shouldn't we be more grieved that we still sin against a holy God? And again, here I'm talking to you as believers. You might be here today as a non-believer and we'll talk about that in a moment. But here, knowing that your sin drove Christ to the cross should cause you both grief and praise. Grief over your sin, that you're still, conviction over your sin, but then praise that you've been forgiven. The petition and predicament are similar. I love what Paul writes. Let me just read something to you from the New Testament. Here's Paul talking about sin He says this, for we know that the law, wait, that's not where I wanted to go. Hold on. For that which I am doing, I was right there, sorry. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Here as a believer, at times I do the thing I hate. I sin. But if I do the very thing that I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, then I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin dwells in me. I find then the practice that, the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wishes to do good 
There's evil in me. I want to do good, but sometimes I don't do it. I do the thing I hate. Verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? That's the struggle. That's the tension, isn't it? You and I as believers live in that tension. The good that we want to do, sometimes we don't do, and sometimes we do the very thing that we shouldn't do. And Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to the God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. On the other, with the flesh, the law of sin, Christ sets us free. So the petition, the petition and the predicament are the same. We struggle and we strive in worshiping God the way we should, but sometimes we don't. We should look back, believer. We should look back at the event when someone or something of greater value redeemed us. Look back to the cross. But then we can also look at the worshiper's peace and the worshiper's proclamation. In many ways, that's the same. It's the same foundation for the New Testament believers. As believers, we wait and hope completely that the Lord sanctifies us as he's bringing us through this process of sanctification, as we're burning off the dross of of sin and evil, as we're burning off the things of this world and becoming more and more holy. We'll never be perfect until that day, until the day that he brings us to heaven. And we long for that day. We hope for that day. We look forward to to that day. And even the proclamation, Peter writes in, uh, in 1 Peter 2.9, he says that we've been chosen so that we can proclaim his excellencies. We've been forgiven so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us from darkness to light. So again, I ask you, New Testament believer, how do you prepare your heart for worship? My guess is most of us don't. I think if we're honest, some of you may be, but my guess is for the majority of us, we don't think through preparing ourselves for worship. We don't think through going to bed necessarily early on Saturday night so that we can be bright and chipper on Sunday morning. And I know that's a tough, that's a tough ask for students. It's the weekend. You get to stay up a little bit later. You get to stay up much later. You're now in college, some of you. Mama's telling you to go to bed at 10 o'clock doesn't, doesn't apply to you anymore. So you could stay up on a Saturday night. I remember one time I had a student, I called a student, this is the church that we worked in, I would call uh, people that hadn't attended in a while, so I was just calling to check up on him. I said, I see that you haven't come to church in a while, is everything okay? He goes, oh, I come to like the, the Sunday school time, because that starts at 10.30. I just, I'm a college student, it's hard for me to get up early. He was talking to the wrong guy. I said, oh, I get it, I get it, life is tough. Man, I, at the time I was a seminary student, I said, I'm a student too. I get it. I also have, I also have three kids and I also work three part-time jobs and I get it. It's, it's tough to get up, but you know why I get up and I come to church at 8.30 in the morning? Number one, because I come for God. Number two, my pastor gets up and he's in his 70s and he gets up early in the morning and he goes down to the, to the elders prayer before church. And if he can do it in his 70s, you better believe I can do it. And there was just silence on the other end of the phone. He said, I think I'll try to come to church next week. How do you prepare? 
What should we do with this? Again, this isn't just a Sunday morning thing. This is an everyday thing. How do you get your heart ready to worship God every day? I think this text has two different applications depending on who you are today. Depending on how you came into this room today, this text will apply in a very broad way. There's probably a ton of applications that could be pulled out of this. I've just picked a few. But if you're here as a believer today, someone who has recognized your need for a savior, someone who recognized that without him you were lost and hopeless, you recognize that you'd been living a life just pleasing yourself rather than pleasing him, then I have three things for you. Number one, we must worship in a way that is defined by God. Here the worshiper was on his way to worship in the temple and we're called to worship God corporately as a body of Christ. The, the New Testament doesn't know a believer who is not part or connected to a local church. And here I'm talking to the choir, right? You're here, you came this morning to worship. But we need to keep doing that. The New Testament doesn't know of an online internet worshiper who just stays online. And obviously there's times when you need to be. If you're sick and not feeling well, you're loving the body by not coming. And, but, but the New Testament doesn't know a believer who's not connected to the body of Christ, right? It's a body. When have you ever in your life seen just a foot running down the road by itself, not connected to a leg or a, or a body or a torso, right? That's impossible. You don't have an ear just floating around. It's connected. And to be a believer, to worship God in the way that he called you to worship him, you must be connected. And there's joy in that. Listen, I love singing worship songs, but isn't it much better to be sitting here with all of you, worshiping together, hearing God's, the body of Christ, raising their voice in worship to the King. We must worship the way that God has ordained it. But we also need to recognize who we are in relationship to our redeeming Savior. We're the redeemed. We've been ransomed by that event in history, the cross, when Christ presented himself as something of greater value, much greater value. And he died in your place. You are redeemed and therefore you should love living a redeemed life, a sanctified life, a life that is constantly putting sin away and a life that is faced towards Christ. Your, your, your gaze is fixed on heaven and you want to be holy because he is holy. That's how you should live. Remember who you are. Thirdly, this text should ring true to you. The believer in you should naturally desire to proclaim to others around you, there is hope and there is abundant redemption. Ask forgiveness for your sins. Throw yourself at his feet. These are just some general ways I think this text could apply to you if you're a non-believer. If you're a believer, excuse me. If you're a non-believer, if you haven't asked forgiveness for your sins, if you continue to live a life of rebellion against a holy and righteous God, remember your sins are being marked. Your iniquities are being counted. This text to you cries out one thing and one thing only, repent. Repent. Oh sinner, there is forgiveness in the Lord. There is forgiveness of the days of rebellion against him. There is forgiveness for that which you have done. Sinner, there is, re- there is abundant, plentiful redemption. Ask forgiveness 
Call on his name. Reconcile yourself to him. This text begs you to repent of your sins and turn wholeheartedly to God. Follow after him in a joyful life, a life of praise, a life filled with beauty and forgiveness. You too can have peace and hope and forgiveness. Ask for it. Let today be that day where you ask for forgiveness. Leave here today a different person because you have asked forgiveness. Friends, in closing, if you have questions, if you would like to ask forgiveness, you have more questions about what it means to repent of your sin, men and women will be in the back right corner, your left corner, um, to pray with you and to counsel you and to bring you through scripture. So don't hesitate. If the Holy Spirit is pricking your heart, go to the back, ask for help. Would you bow your, your hearts and pray with me? Oh Lord, with you there is redemption and we praise you. Lord, forgive us for the times where we understand that. Forgive us for the times where we know that. Forgive us for the times when we just continue in life without preparing our hearts for worship. Lord, forgive us for the times when we sin without even asking for forgiveness. Lord, help us with that. Lord, we want to have short lists with you. We want to, Lord, have hearts that are softened. We don't want to have hearts of stone. Lord, we want to have hearts that, that plead and cry out for forgiveness and then praise because we know forgiveness has been given. Lord, help us with that. Thank you for doing that. Lord, I pray for anyone here, Lord, who is not a believer. I pray that they would repent. Lord, I pray that they would ask forgiveness for those things that they've done that have driven them, Lord, down a path that's far from you. Lord, I pray that you would prick their hearts. I pray that you would, Lord, call them to your side and redeem them and ransom them from their sins. In your name we pray, amen.